0: The verse on which this psalm turns is, as you probably guessed, verse 3. That's the verse we've been highlighting this morning. Verse 3, with its unapologetic declaration of the absolute sovereignty of God. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The rest of the psalm is the record of the Israelite faithful, both the priests and the people, grappling with the implications of that truth, applying it to their present circumstances which are difficult. And deriving from that truth that God is sovereign over our present distress, deriving from that truth immense comfort. And my prayer this morning is that you would find in this psalm the same comfort. The main point of this morning's sermon from Psalm 115 can be distilled into a single sentence. I've put it at the top of your bulletin. It goes like this. The Lord will bring you through life and death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and joyful praise... If you acknowledge and trust in His absolute sovereignty as the one true and living God, and love and long to see His glory manifested in His covenant love for His people. Now that is admittedly a complex sentence, but I think it captures the essence, the point of this psalm. Let me give it to you one more time. The Lord will bring you through life with all of its ups and all of its downs and all of its peaks and all of its valleys. He will bring you through this life and through death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and joyful praise if, if you Acknowledge and trust in his absolute sovereignty as the one true and living God. If you will make Psalm 115.3 the foundation of your life, then the Lord will bring you through life and death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and eternal joy if you acknowledge and trust in his absolute sovereignty as the one true and living God, and love and long to see his glory manifested in his covenant love for his people. Scholars are divided over when this psalm was composed. You know the psalms were composed over about a 600-year period um, Add another 400 years to that a 1,000-year period if you include Psalm 90, which was written by Moses. And therefore, they're divided over what the circumstances are which lie behind it. It bears no inscription, so we can't be certain. But there are, there are clues. There are good, educated guesses. Derek Kidner, for instance, tentatively dates this psalm, Psalm 115, to during or immediately after Israel's exile in Babylon so it would put it somewhere in the 6th century BC Whatever the case we know this Israel was being taunted by the gentile nations because of the apparent absence and impotence of their god you'll see that in verse 2 And so the psalmist Senses the need to remind Israel that their God is the living God and He abides in the heavens and He does all that He pleases, and that He is the rewarder of those who are faithful to Him. So I agree with Kidner that this suggests a rather late, either an exilic or post exilic date for the Psalm. I think Israel is either in exile in Babylon or just returned from exile in Babylon. It was a time when God had removed his manifest presence from Israel due to their idolatry and their persistent unbelief. If God were present in their circumstances to bless them and to protect them, if Israel were strong and prosperous, the nations would not be saying, where is their God? They would know and fear the God of Israel. Just like David said before he slew Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, when he said to Goliath and the armies of the Philistines, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. When God acts like that, to bless and to protect and to provide for his people. All the earth knows that there's a God in Israel. Evidently, that's not happening in the psalmist's present circumstances because the nations are saying, where is your God? So those glory days are long past. Israel is now a defeated minority. There has been on the world stage. They're a slave to the idolatrous nations that surround them. That's why the nations are saying, verse 2, where is their God? And it's in the midst of this discouraging season in Israel's history that the psalmist comes to them and says, I'll tell you where our God, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And he will bring you through life and death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and joyful praise if you will acknowledge and trust in His absolute sovereignty as the one true and living God, and love and long to see His glory manifested in His covenant love for His people. So I want to ask you before we get started, is it possible that you presently find yourself in similarly distressing circumstances? Is it possible... That when you look out over the present situation of your life, even you are tempted to say, where is our God? Is it possible that God has brought you here this morning to this very text in order to give you such a vision of his sovereignty which reigns over all things, including all the circumstances of your life, in order that you might have hope. Most commentators agree that Psalm 115 follows what's known as a chiastic structure. That's A-B-C-C-B-A. And as you look down through here, you can kind of see that. Uh, They're not really agreed on where the breaks take place, but I'm going to follow Two commentators, Dennis Tucker and Jamie Grant, uh, with the following structure. We'll put it up on the screen for you, and you see it on your outline. Here's the way I'm going to kind of trace our way through this psalm. He begins in verses 1 to 3 with a prayer to the God of heaven. Then he speaks of the impotence of the idols of the nations in verses 4 to 8. And then he calls upon Israel to trust in their covenant God in verses 9 through 11, followed by a statement of confidence in their covenant God in verses 12 and 13. Then he returns in verse, verses 14 to 15 to contrast the omnipotent power, the omnipotence of Yahweh with the impotence of the gods, the idols of the nations. And he closes with a statement of praise to the God of heaven. That's the structure of this psalm. That's the way we're going to follow it this morning. So let's begin in verses 1 to 3 with the prayer to the God of heaven. The psalm begins with a prayer to the invisible God who is in the heavens and who exercises absolute sovereignty over all things. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse 1 is a desperate cry. Now we may not immediately recognize this because it looks so different from the other Psalms that we've studied this summer that likewise begin with a desperate plea for God's deliverance. Psalm 16, for instance, begins, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Preserve me. Save me. It's just right out there. What's what's bubbling up from the psalmist's heart just comes immediately out of his mouth. Same thing in Psalm 7. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me. From all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. But Psalm 115 is different. It has a different tone, it takes a different approach. It begins not with a cry, Save me, preserve me, rescue me. Rather, it begins with a cry, Glorify yourself. Isn't that interesting? He wants God to manifest the glory of his name for the sake of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I tell you why I think it's different. In Psalm 16 and Psalm 7, David is crying out for deliverance from his enemies which pose an immediate threat to his life. In contrast, in Psalm 115, it doesn't appear that the psalmist is Under imminent threat of attack, rather it seems that he's experiencing a prolonged absence of God's apparent blessing and fellowship. Life is hard, discouraging, depressing, devoid of that joy and that blessing which Israel had experienced in those admittedly rare occasions when they looked like the nation envisaged by the law of Moses. So in this prolonged, depressing season of Israel's existence, what does the psalmist lead the people to ask of God? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. O God, give, manifest, display your glory among the nations. Show yourself magnificent and mighty and sovereign and supreme among the nations that do not believe that you exist. But how? What does the psalmist have in mind? How how does he want God to glorify himself? Well, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. In other words, the reason why the psalmist pleads with God to display his glory is because God had pledged His steadfast love and his faithfulness to Israel. And the way in which the psalmist pleads with God to demonstrate that glory is by remembering that steadfast love, by acting in accordance with that steadfast love and that faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness, those are covenant language. The psalmist earnestly desires to see God move in saving redemptive power on behalf of his covenant people, which means that God's glory among the nations and God's Goodness towards his covenant people are not two separate, unrelated ideas. They are intertwined. They are inseparable. So he says, oh God, manifest your glory by fulfilling your covenant mercies to your people. Glorify your name by saving your people. That's the thrust of verse 1. And that's why I included in my summary, that the Lord will bring you through life and death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and joyful praise if you acknowledge and trust His absolute sovereignty as the one true and living God and love and long to see His glory manifested in His covenant love for His people. One of the marks of the people of God, one of those People for whom God exercises his absolute sovereignty for their good is that they love God's glory. And they know that God has inseparably linked his glory with their redemption. So they love and long to see his redemption played out on behalf of his people. The psalmist wants to see the redemption of Israel. He wants to see the consummation of the covenant. Well, how might that look for us? It looks like loving and longing to see God glorified in the consummated redemption of His new Covenant people, when Christ returns in splendor and majesty and terror and beauty, when He raises the dead and He gathers together His elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth, and He transforms them into resplendent creatures, filled, just bursting with glory and radiant with beauty. That's how we love and long to see God's covenant mercies exercised towards His people. And you know what? That has a hope instilling effect in our lives when we're going, especially through difficult, depressing, distressing circumstances, to remember that God has bound Himself to me. God has bound Himself in Christ to His church. And one day we're going to see the heavens rent open. And we're going to see the king coming on the air in power and great glory. And he's coming back for us. And so no matter how difficult and how distressing and how awful the circumstances of this life appear right now. The cry of my heart is glorify your name by coming back for us. That's verse 1. Now why is this such a desperate desire for the psalmist? It's because presently Israel is the object of the nation's derision as they taunt them regarding their invisible and apparently impotent, powerless God. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You know, when Babylon destroyed Israel and they, they raised Jerusalem to the ground, they understood that as the triumph of their gods over the God of Israel. And likewise, 50 years later, when Persia conquered Babylon, they understood that as the triumph of their Persian gods over the Babylonian gods and over all those whom Babylon had conquered, including Israel. Israel. That's the way the ancient world thought. They thought of, of the gods as, as confined to a particular people and a particular region. And when these peoples went to war against each other, it wasn't just man against man. It was God against God. And so if we conquered you, it was a clear sign that our gods are greater than your gods. And Israel is now a conquered people. And that's why the nations are saying, where is your God that you speak so much about, that you sing about, that you write about? You see, when Israel spoke of Yahweh, they didn't talk about him like the rest of the nations talked about their gods. They didn't say that their God was a regional deity whose power was confined to a particular people in a particular place. They said, our God, the God of Israel, Yahweh is his name. He is absolutely sovereign, and he exercises worldwide dominion over all things. And when Israel said that, they were laughed to scorn because... I mean, look at the evidence. They're in chains. They're enslaved. Their city and their temple have been broken to the ground. Absolute sovereignty and worldwide dominion. If your God were the one true God, as you claim, then you, his people, would rule over the earth. But as it is, you are a weak Conquered, enslaved people. Where is your God? I would say that the church faces similar derision today from the peoples of the world. Does not the world scorn us because we worship and proclaim an invisible and apparently, emphasis on apparent, apparently impotent God? Think about it. Whenever large-scale disaster strikes, does the world not say to the church, where is your God? Where was He when this happened? Where was He when that happened? Or whenever personal tragedy occurs in your life, do not your unbelieving friends say the same? When we proclaim that the God in whom I trust is the one true God and I am His covenant people, do they not point to the evidence of the terrible circumstances of your life and say, how's that working out for you? Do the peoples of this world not look at the church and point at the evidence of the violence, turmoil, and chaos upon the earth or the poverty and the persecution of the church and surmise that if our God was who we claim him to be, then he would rule over this world in a different fashion and his people would not be regarded as sheep to be slaughtered all the day long. Yet the, in the face of such derision and accusation, the church must respond confidently, even defiantly, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. We acknowledge and trust in the absolute sovereignty of the one true and living God. Let's just sit for a middle minute in verse 3, and I want us to recognize what that confession of faith acknowledges. I wrote down five things, five truths to be found in Psalm 115.3. First, it acknowledges that whatever the present circumstances may be, God is our God. Okay, this is the confession of a faithful Israelite living in poverty, possibly slavery, being derided and scorned by the nation, living well beneath the prosperity and blessing that had been promised to Israel in the past and was promised to Israel in the future. And yet, in the midst of his present circumstances, he holds fast to his confession. Our God, my God, is in the heavens. So this confession of faith must be confessed regardless of our present circumstances. To confess that our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases means that there are times when He pleases my circumstances to be such as they are. Second, it acknowledges God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Our God is in the heavens, meaning that He reigns over all, both the heavens and the earth. He is not some regional deity. He is not the God of one nation only. He is God of all the earth, of all peoples, of all nations, of all time, and of all history. The psalmist is going to contrast verse 3 and his confession of Yahweh, the one true and living God, with The idols of the nations in verses 4 to 8, the gods that are made of silver and gold, gods that are made by human hands, gods that can be found in physical temples. On the contrary, he says, our God is invisible because he's not contained in temples and he's not contained in statues made of gold and silver. His throne is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. This is the same thing Paul told the pagan Athenians in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The invisibility of God is not a problem for us. If God could be contained within his creation, he would not be God. Third Verse 3 acknowledges God's absolute omnipotence. He does all that he pleases. His will is not frustrated by anything. Which means that everything that happens, and I mean that exactly how it came out. Everything that happens, happens according to his willing and his doing by the exercise of his own sovereign power. There is never a time nor a circumstance in which God sits back and says, Boy, I wish I could. He does all that he pleases. Fourth, it acknowledges God's absolute freedom. He does all that he pleases. His will is not constrained by anything. There is no higher law, no higher rule to regulate or to prevent his actions. He does whatever He pleases. His will is free and unconstrained. That is what it means for God to be sovereign. Psalm 115.3 is the very definition of sovereignty. Absolute freedom combined with absolute power. And as we will see in Romans 9, both God's mercy and God's judgment fall within the purview of God's sovereign freedom finally this means that whatever is whatever circumstances exist exists by god's sovereign will including the present poverty and persecution of his people if psalm 115 is th- 3 is true your present circumstances are exactly what God intended them to be. And He intended them to be so for a purpose. And if you are one of His people, that purpose is your everlasting blessing and joy. The psalmist's response to the mocking of the nations is to say, Our God has given us over to you for a time according to His own sovereign purpose. But that does not mean that He is impotent or that He is absent. He has not abdicated His heavenly throne. We will trust Him both in times of prosperity and in times of poverty. So the prayer to the God of heaven in verses 1-3, Three is both a petition and a confession. The psalmist confesses his faith in the absolute sovereignty of God in the midst of their present distress, yet he longs and he cries out for that distress to come to an end, for God to manifest his glory in the covenant love toward his people by redeeming them out of their present distress and fulfilling his covenant promises to them. And this morning, in the midst of your own circumstances and your own present distress, whatever it may be, I encourage you to do the same. Confess your faith in the absolute sovereignty of God. Whatever exists in my life exists by God's sovereign will. He has not made a mistake. And long. For him to act redemptively towards you. Long to see his glory manifested in his covenant mercies towards his covenant people. That's verses 1 to 3. That is how you find hope. Even if you're in slavery in Babylon. The second section of the psalm continues the response in verse 3, The peoples of the nations have accused Israel of worshiping an invisible and impotent God. Well, now the psalmist gets snarky. He responds that God is invisible because the earth cannot contain him. And as for his power, it is exercised with sovereign and omnipotent freedom, unlike your gods. Verses 4-8, to eight, he goes out on the offensive and he attacks The idols of the nations as imaginary and impotent works of men's hands. Their idols. Okay, You see how he's contrasting? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. Hands, but they don't feel feet, but they don't walk. They don't even make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So the nations mocked the Israelite God for being invisible and impotent. And so the psalmist turns around and mocks their idols for being visible, but imaginary. I mean, you have gods that you can see but you had to make them yourselves. Furthermore, you've made them to look just like you. They're reflections of your own image. God, our God in the heavens who does all that he pleases, he made us in his image, but you've turned around and you've made gods in your image. They have mouths and eyes and ears and noses and hands and feet and a throat. That's great, I guess. But they don't speak, see, hear, smell, feel, walk, or utter a single sound. They're imaginary. Our God is invisible because he's in the heavens, and he cannot be contained within the cosmos that he created. Your gods are visible because you yourselves fashioned them with your hands. Our God is powerful to do all that he pleases your gods are dull and lifeless Derek Kidner com, uh, compared the psalmist's retort in verses 4 to 8 to that of the child in the Hans Christian Andersen story The Emperor's New Clothes. You remember that I had that when I was a kid and it was one of my favorite books. There was a vain emperor long ago who loved to dress in the most luxurious garments. And one day two conmen came into the royal court claiming to be the world's finest weavers capable of making the most elegant and exquisite clothing. They also claimed that their garments were made of such fine, costly thread that they were visible only to those who were worthy, but they would be invisible to those who were unfit and stupid. Well, the emperor, being vain, quickly hired them to make him the finest robes, and so they set about pretending to sew them. When the day finally came for the weavers to bring their finished product to the emperor, they presented their clothes with the utmost pomp and flair, but of course they had nothing to show. <laughs> it was, they were imaginary. Imaginary. But everyone in the court, the emperor included, was afraid to say anything for fear of appearing unworthy and stupid. So they simply went along with the charade, imagining that everybody else could see what they could not. So the emperor and his whole court declared that these were indeed the finest and most luxurious garments ever produced. The emperor, in fact, took off his old clothes and put these new ones on and paraded through the kingdom to show off these new clothes while the nobleman in his court pretended to carry the train of his imaginary robe. And as they paraded through the city, the the townsfolk rather uncomfortably went along with the pretense because they didn't want to appear unworthy or stupid either. Until finally a child blurted out, but he isn't wearing anything at all. And the emperor shivers momentarily. He suspects in the back of his mind that the child might be right, but he quickly decides that it's better to continue the pretense than to admit his folly. So he continues the parade through the city, naked as the day he was born, marching just as proudly as ever. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing in verses 4 to 8. He's like the child who blurts out, but those are just statues. You made them. They don't speak or see or hear or smell or feel or walk or utter a sound. They certainly can't save you. But rather than admit their folly, the nations continue to worship their imaginary gods. And as they do so, they become like them, verse 8, dull and lifeless, dead. The psalmist then turns to his own people, Israel, and he calls them back to faithfulness to their covenant Lord. Note this, even before their circumstances have changed. He tells them, be faithful to your covenant God even before you see that faithfulness worked out in your own life. In light of all that he has said, the sovereignty of their God, the impotency of the idols of the nations, he now calls Israel to entrust themselves wholly to Yahweh, notice Lord in all caps, the one true and living God of Israel. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. That threefold division, I think, is probably best understood as the laity, okay, the, the people, Israel, the priests, the house of Aaron, and then the nation as a whole, those who fear the Lord. And I want to take just a moment and give a little explanation for how the church of the new covenant should interpret and apply passages like this that speak directly to old covenant Israel. Now, we've covered this topic before at length, but it bears repeating that the, the apostolic writers of the New Testament considered the new covenant church, us, to be the fulfillment of the old covenant people of God. See, God has only ever had one true people, those in covenant with him by grace through faith. Just like Abraham was. In other words, those in any place at any time of any nation who repent of their sins and trust in God's promise of mercy are forgiven of their sin, are reconciled to God as father. Men like Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, Samuel, David, and so on. These are the people of God, related to God in what is called a covenant of grace, justified before God by faith alone in the promise of His mercy through Christ. Now, there was a time in redemptive history, if you think of history like like a linear timeline, there was a time from Sinai to Calvary where the covenant people of God were, were largely identified with the ethnic people of Israel. But Paul, an Israelite himself, makes plain that to be a part of Israel by birth, was not the same thing as being a child of Abraham by faith. You can see this in Romans 9, 6, and 7, Galatians 3, 7, and 9, and other places. And now that the new covenant has come in Christ, being mediated, that is, that is put in effect by his death and resurrection, the people of God, the covenant people, are not to be identified with any particular nation or ethnicity, but are those of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who trust in Christ as their Redeemer and Savior and call upon him and follow him as their Lord. So you take that brief sketch of God's dealings with humanity and redemptive history, and you turn back to verses 9 to 11, and we see how we can apply this in a new covenant setting. The house of Israel that is called to trust in the Lord would be the church. The house of Aaron would be be her leaders, right? The priests and the Levites of the old covenant would be kind of similar to to the elders and the deacons of the new covenant. And then those who fear him would be... Both of those groups understood as a whole. And so these verses are calling to the church, the people, and the pastors together to trust in the Lord. And says, he is our help and our shield. Even though we cannot see him. Even though we cannot see his hand at work. Even though we cannot understand his sovereign purposes. It's calling us to make Psalm 115.3 the foundation of our life. To be able to say no matter what happens, no matter how good or how bad things appear, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So I would take verses 9 to 11 and I would turn it around and I would say, Oh, people of First Baptist Nixa, trust In your sovereign God. For he is your help and your shield. O elders and deacons. Leaders of first Baptist Nixa. Trust in your sovereign God. For he is your help and your shield. All you who fear the Lord. Who trust in his name. Rest your life. Upon our sovereign God, for he is our help and our shield. He then follows up that call with confidence, with an assurance to the same three groups, right? The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, those who fear the Lord, people, pastors, church. And he reminds them, God has not forgotten you. And God has not forsaken you. He will not abandon those who trust Him. So I'm going to take this and I'm going to point it right back at you again. In the midst of your present, difficult, distressing, dire circumstances, your God has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. He will remember you. He will bless you. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. This is the unshakable foundation of our faith. This is the source of our strength in times of trial and affliction. God has not forgotten nor forsaken us. Us, He will bless us, notice, every one of us, both small and great. He hasn't forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. He will not forsake you. He will bless you. This is our confidence, church. The same as Israel's was. It is the covenant, forged in eternity, revealed in time, mediated at the cross, consummated at Christ's return. God will not let the covenant fail. He will not abandon his people to this world of sin and evil. Therefore, when trial and affliction and tragedy and calamity arise, remind yourself, God has made a covenant with me in Christ. He has remembered his covenant and he will act in deliverance on my behalf. The time is short, he is coming. The ageless eternal God for whom a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day has not forgotten nor forsaken his covenant though the years tick on and it's now been nearly two millennia since Christ ascended on high. He has a purpose in his delay. He has a purpose in your present affliction, but he will come. He will bring you through life With all of its triumphs and tragedies, trials, tribulations, joys, and sorrows, he will bring you through life and death into your eternal inheritance purchased by Christ, received by faith, an eternal inheritance of everlasting blessing and eternal praise. Then, in contrast to the impotent and imaginary idols of the nations who cannot speak, see, hear, smell, feel, walk, or utter a sound, the psalmist then declares that Israel's God is able to bless his people. He's able to make good on his promise. Why? Because he's the omnipotent maker of heaven and earth. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Notice the shift. Between verses 4 to 8, that was the first B, and verses 14 to 15, the second B in our outline. In verses 4 to 8, the psalmist belittles the idols as the creation of human hands who are unable to act for their Creator's benefit. Then, down in Psalm 14 to 15, the psalmist flips that on its head with the claim that our God is able to act on his people's behalf precisely because he is not the work of our hands, but rather we are the work of his. Then in light of the truth now established that Yahweh is the one true and living God who reigns in absolute sovereignty over all and has promised blessing to his covenant people, he returns now and he vows His immortal and heartfelt praise to God. Verses 16 to 18. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now we've almost worked through the entire summary that it's at the top of your outline. The Lord will bring you through life and death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and joyful praise if you acknowledge and trust in His absolute sovereignty as the one true and living God and long and love, or love and long to see His glory manifested in His covenant love for His people. But there's two points that we need to make, and both of those emerge from these last three verses. First, look down at verses 17 and 18. The psalmist says that the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Were that verse to stand alone, it might simply mean that worship belongs to the living. In other words, only the living can go up to the temple and offer sacrifice. Only the living can join in the congregation to sing the praises of God. Only the living can make those pilgrimage festivals to Jerusalem. Right? The dead don't attend church. But then in verse 18, he goes on to say, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So he contrasts himself and those like him who are faithful to Yahweh. With those in verse 17 who are the dead. And he says, we, unlike them, will bless the Lord. We will sing his praise forevermore. Evidently, the psalmist did not think that he or anyone else who was faithful would be included among the dead who are silent forever. So I take this to mean that the psalmist's expectation was that the Lord would bring him not only through life, but also through death into an eternal inheritance where he would enjoy God's blessing and sing God's praise forever. And then second, look again at the whole passage running from verses 16 to 18. I think think what you see in these verses are a division of humanity into, into two types, two groups. There are the dead who do not praise God and the living who do. And since we've already seen that the psalmist can't mean merely physical death that separates the two groups because he believes he'll be brought through death into eternal worship of God. He must be referring to spiritual death. So look at verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. That's verse 3, right? Same thing he said up there. But the earth he has given to the children of men. And then he proceeds immediately down into the next two verses, which are all about who does and does not praise the Lord eternally. I think the implication is that the earth was given to mankind in order that we might glorify and praise God in our lives, in our stewardship of this gift of life. And so there are two types of men who walk this earth. There are those who trust invisible yet impotent idols, and they become like them, dead, verse 8. And there are those who trust in the invisible yet sovereign God, and they forever fulfill the purpose for which they were created, namely to praise the Lord, to glorify Him, and to enjoy Him forever. Therefore, the only ones who... Whom God will bring through life and death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and everlasting praise are those who praise him in life regardless of their present circumstances. You see that? Those who acknowledge and trust in the absolute sovereignty of God as the one true and living God, and those who love and long to see His glory manifested in His covenant love for His people. They and only they will God bring through life and death into the eternal inheritance where they will experience His blessing and sing His praise forevermore. That's Psalm 115. It holds out before our eyes a God in the heavens who does all that he pleases. A God of absolute, sovereign freedom. And it says to us, God will bring you through life and death into an eternal inheritance of blessing and joyful praise if you will acknowledge and trust in His absolute sovereignty as the one true and living God and love and long to see His glory manifested in His covenant love for His people. And my prayer is that God would be pleased to make every one of us one of those people.